Welcome to Gruesome, your horrific true crime podcast. I am Meg, and Constantine is going to tell us, well, actually, we're both going to tell you. Connie and I are going to tell you about Richard Chase, the vampire of Sacramento tonight. And I think we have to say happy anniversary, Gruesome. Happy anniversary, honey. Three years. Mm. I can't believe it. No. Well, it has been a rough couple months for us. Like any true relationship, it has its ups and downs. <laughs> it's been a wild time, but we're heading into the new, I'll call it fiscal year for us. Since we are, and I'm in corporate lingo now. Uh, fiscal year, going to get our shit together. It's going to be better. We got this. It's fine. Somebody go back and tally how many times we've said we're going to get our shit together this year. <laughs> yeah, but this is it. This is the real one. This this, this time is, it's for real. Is, we're doing this, it. This is what we need. Um, <laughs> we need this. <laughs> Tonight, like Meg said, we both are going to cover Richard Chase. Uh, I don't know how else to say this except for this is an extremely brutal episode. Um, on our last Patreon live, our patrons were like, let's, you guys should do something that's like a bigger case. Yeah. A bigger case, like kind of a doozy. And we were like, say less. Okay. This is about as graphic as we can get without going into the, some of the ones that we refuse to cover. That is Um, true. So, and honestly, after researching this, I was like, damn, what the fuck did we do? I have heard this case, like, and I've heard about it. And it's like one of those, like lore like when you talk about like crazy serial killers like you talk about richard chase but to read the nitty-gritty details of what he did yeah it is so trigger what was your trigger warning yeah yes you had the best graphic violence against children and animals and i say that specifically because sometimes we get people who are like i don't care about the deaths but if the dog dies i don't want to hear well i'm telling you the dog dies okay so don't listen yeah this is not send me a strongly worded email about it later because i'm warning you yeah this is fucking nuts like honestly don't eat this or don't don't eat this don't listen (laughs) to this if you're eating because i was reading a book about it while i was eating and like i was done eating yeah (laughs) i was like okay we're done we are done here um yeah so i think think that's a good warning yeah (laughs) yeah that's it it's just it's about as good as we can get turn Uh, back now richard chase was born on may 23rd 1950 in sacramento california his dad richard chase senior was a computer specialist his mom beatrice beatrice was a teacher during chase's early life and by early i mean like prior to age five He was considered an average boy. He, his family bought a house when he was three. They moved from an apartment to this house. A year later, the Chases welcomed Pamela, Richard's younger sister, to the family. He was active in Boy Scouts. He played Little League. He had lots of friends. And on the outside looking in, it may have looked like your typical all-American family in the 50s. But at home, it was a very different situation. Um, His sister, Pamela, would later recount that her dad and brother would regularly butt heads with uh, Richard Jr. being shaken and even thrown against walls. And when he was really young, um, Richard Sr. was he force fed 
Richard Jr. until he vomited because he wasn't eating his food. And then there was also a constant slew of emotional abuse that was handed out by the elder Chase. Richard Chase Sr. and his wife Beatrice would often fight loudly in front of their kids. Richard Sr. had problems with drinking and Beatrice often accused Richard Sr. of using drugs and trying to poison her. Um, that's important to remember that the mom, that was kind of like the poisoning aspect will come in to later, like what some things that Richard Jr. would say. But like Beatrice being like, hey, he's trying to poison me. Like that's kind of a telltale sign. During the time of the escalating marital issues, Richard Jr. started displaying traits from the McDonald triad. And if you have listened to or read about any true crime in significant capacity, you know what the, Mac the McDonald triad is, sometimes called the triad of sociopathy. It's the set of behaviors that are thought to be predictive of violent behavior when the behaviors are observed in childhood. Cruelty to animals, arson, frequent bedwetting past the age of five. And Richard Chase Jr. displayed all three traits very loudly. <laughs> and like we said earlier, trigger warning animal cruelty. But Chase started first having an obsession with animals that were already dead. But then he quickly started killing and torturing cats in the neighborhood. He also killed birds, rabbits, and even dogs. He had started killing so many cats that the neighborhood noticed that there was a significant number of stray cats and house cats that had gone missing. His mom found cats buried in her flower garden. And during this time, his mom was being seen for various mental health concerns of her own. When Richard Jr. was 13, his family issues seemed to reach a boiling point. Money troubles followed, and the family eventually lost their house. Another thing to know, in his early teen years, and even into, like, young adulthood, Chase actively told people that he was a member of the James Younger group, which is, like, the Jesse James outlaw group. He was, well, like, obsessed with it. Which the right time, right? Like, it seems like it was before. He was, like, a reincarnated. Like, he said that he was okay. reincarnated. Okay. Mm-hmm. Definitely saint. On. He would like put posters up of like this outlaw band up in his room and like put his picture with them. And he was like, see, look, like I've been there the whole time. The whole time. <laughs> it's always it's been me. me. <laughs> it's me, Jessica. It's me, Jessica. And during this time, he is still setting small fires. He's still wetting the bed. He would get up in the middle of the night and make food for himself, and he would, like, scorch the pans, like, burn them, and then just leave them in piles in the middle of the floor, like, making no effort to clean up after himself. Like, as a teenager, he was doing this. As a teenager, yeah. High school started, and the break from reality really started to take hold for Chase, and sadly, so did the deterioration of his home life as well. His parents decided to separate, and Beatrice moved her and Pamela and Richard Jr. to Los Angeles. But Chase was only there for a week before his dad came and got him and returned to Sacramento. Four months later, his mom and Pamela came back. While he was attending Mira Loma High School, Richard Jr. was literally just getting by. He started experimenting with drugs, including weed, LSD. He partied a lot. He started dating girls. 
And outside of the torturing animals, he seemed like he was a normal teenager. And I say that with sarcasm because that's still like a pretty fucking big thing to be wrong with you. Um, one night after a party, Chase confided in one of his friends that had brought him home. Because So he's at this party and he starts making like a huge skeptic or spectacle of himself. So his mm-hmm. friend's like, all right, let's get you home. And he confided to this friend that he was having trouble with impotence. And this was when he was trying to be intimate with girls. He was convinced that this was caused by a lack of blood flow because someone had stolen his pulmonary artery. So he was low on blood. Mm, and that's he, not a thing that can happen. Exactly. And he genuine, genuinely believed this. And this is a statement that he would repeat hundreds of times over the course of his life. And this is what experts say led him to one of his most disturbing traits that we'll talk about later and why he has the name the Vampire of Sacramento. Um, When he was a sophomore in high school, he got arrested for marijuana possession. And when his dad didn't get a lawyer to defend him and just accepted the sentence of weakened community service, Richard Jr. really rebelled. He believed that his dad didn't have his back, when in reality, and this isn't saying that Richard Sr. was a stand-up guy because he definitely did abuse his children, but he knew that Richard Jr. was heading down a troubled path and that there was something wrong with him. He thought if he had to, like, have a punishment for his actions that maybe it would kind of jumpstart him to get him on the right track. Mm-hmm. But instead, it just furthered the resentment that he had for his family. His grades went to the trash can. Like the highest grade that he was getting was they were C's, but most of them were D's and F's. He completely stopped taking care of himself. His hygiene went to shit. And his mom, because Richard Sr. was like, dude, what is wrong with this kid? Like there is something wrong. And his mom's like, no, he's just being a hippie. You know, it's 60s. (laughs) Wrong. But his dad knew that something darker was going on. His friends stopped coming over. He completely isolated himself. He just stayed in his room doing drugs and then killing animals. That's literally like what his life was. Somehow, he managed to graduate from high school in June of 1968. He was given a Volkswagen as a graduation gift. That summer, he finally went to see a psychiatrist for his erectile dysfunction. Instead, That's why he went to the psychiatrist? That is why. Cool. Instead of the psychiatrist telling him that his erectile dysfunction was because of the lack of blood in his body, he told Chase that, hey, I feel like maybe you have some repressed anger likely directed towards a woman. And that is what is leading to this issue. And Chase was like, "Mm, you're wrong. That's not it. It's not it. At the end of 1968, he got a job as a typist and decided, decided to start thinking about college. He enrolled at the American River College, which for my, I think it's like their local community college. Okay. And it was going okay. He was maintaining C's. He was kind of being more social. But he eventually got expelled because he decided to take a leave of absence that was unapproved by the school. So he was just like, that's, uh, that's just truancy, baby. Yeah, exactly. I did one of those too, but I just like quit school for a while. I was just like, I'm not coming back. See you never. Um, So he found himself like panicked because he didn't want his parents to know that he had gotten kicked out of school. One night he was just like sitting there being a weirdo outside of a house. 
And the two girls walked out and it was a friend of his from high school. And she was like, oh, look, it's Richard Chase. I remember him. And she remembered him as this good looking guy, like nice, maybe a little weird. But when he had like told her what happened, they were like, hey, you, we need a third roommate. You can live here. He quickly became the roommate from hell. And I do not say that lightly. He had horrible hygiene. He walked around naked all of the time. He was constantly using LSD, smoking weed. He would lock himself in his room. At one point, he boarded his closet, like he boarded himself in his closet from the inside because he thought someone was watching him. He like put a hole in the wall and then boarded himself in. He would come out during parties and talk like incoherently, being all freaking weird, dirty and naked. Um, one night he stood in the window. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine just trying to vibe in the 60s? Like, hell so, yeah, this fucking Well, I mean, honestly, I bet out. that wasn't, that that feels like maybe not, a, it wasn't as uncommon. Maybe yeah, it was especially with uncommon. like the, like how much LSD was being used at the time. Yeah, nothing like today. <laughs> <laughs> nothing like today. We do not do that. We've never um, done that. In one situation, he like stood in the window and he was just waving his gun at people that were walking by on the sidewalk from the window. And the girls were like, okay, he is not going to move out. We've been trying to get him and he's not going to move out. And so they did the smartest thing I have ever heard because they were like, hey, he's got a gun. He's a little fucking nuts, man. Let's just dip Mm -hmm. out. And they moved out. They're like, okay, fine. This house is yours. We're done. Enjoy the bills, baby. And surprise, surprise, but he was not able to maintain the rent by himself. So he eventually had to move back in with his parents. When he moved back in with his parents, he started to tell people that his mom was trying to poison him. So that didn't make for like a peaceful home environment. For his room, he decorated the walls with pictures of hearts that he cut from anatomy books. And in 1970... correct hearts. Yes. Not like... Oh my gosh, the love heart is like that we make. <laughs> like he's not putting <laughs> like, valentines all over the wall. <laughs> no, like legitimate hearts from like the Grey's Anatomy magazine. In 1971, his parents separated and ultimately finally divorced. Richard Jr. would go back and forth between his parents' houses with him primarily living with his mom during this time. And she just bailed him out of trouble any chance she got. She paid parking tickets. If he needed money, she was giving him money, but he still thought she was trying to kill him. And during this, his drug use was just increasing. There was a period of time where he was so out of it, he could not even write his own name. And he was honestly almost nonverbal. He would get jobs, but they only lasted for a couple days at a time. And they usually only lasted long enough for him to get money for a drug fix. One night after a heated fight with his mom, one of hundreds, He hit her, and so she made him leave. And this was not uncommon for their fights to turn physical. He ran back to his dad's, but the cycle continued. Richard Chase Jr. was a huge hypochondriac. He always thought he was sick. He always thought he was suffering from some ailment. Again, he would go back and forth between his mom and his dad's house. Like, he would fight with one, get kicked out, go back to the other one. So he moves back in with his mom. And after another fight, one where he hit her over the head as she tried to call the police on him, police came, she declined to press charges. She was finally like, okay, I can't do this shit. And she reached out to his grandma, Holly, 
and was like, get him out of here. So Richard Chase Jr. moved to L.A. to live with his grandma. While he was there, and I want you to think about how fucking terrifying this thought is, he got a job as a school bus driver for developmentally disabled children. No, I don't like that. The 60s are just like, you can drive a bus? Come on in. come on. And he actually held the job for about a year, which is his record, like his record employment length, employment record length, however you say that. Despite the fact that he never cleaned the bus, he never showered, he always appeared nervous and shaky, he never washed his hands, he's just like this filthy, disheveled well, who was animal. gonna complain? You know, they're children. Yeah, they're ch- they're their here. kids are like, all right, this fucking weird guy's driving the bus, it's fine. It's like my Uncle Terry. Like, he's good. <laughs> Don't look him in the eyes. And then, I were, like, you see movies where they're like, oh, yeah, got a thousand-yard stare. <laughs> That's just what they expected of bus drivers. They're not like that anymore, though. My kids' bus drivers are great. I was like, I remember, like, getting cursed at. Yeah, absolutely. Mine was old and grumpy. His name was Sam. <laughs> he yelled a lot. I just kept my head down, played it cool for however many years, 10 years. His grandma Holly finally was like, yeah, I can't do this. You're weird. You have to get out of here. So she sent him back to Sacramento just in time for Christmas. When he got back home, he seemed to be making more of an effort to be social because up until this point, he had completely isolated himself. He didn't see his friends anymore. And a lot of that is probably because his friends were like, hey, you're weird. You don't shower. You talk hey, you're about naked a lot of all weird the time. Shit. Yeah, you're naked constantly. Like, we don't want to be a part of this. Um, he's got another job. He would keep the jobs here and there, working long enough for this particular one where he could buy himself a 22 caliber pistol. So the cycle continued. He's like going back and forth between his parents, working some, kind of starting to hang out with his friends. His parents are like, okay, maybe he's being, you know, maybe he's growing up a little bit. In April, he went to a party at the apartment of one of his friends. And while he was there, a woman caught his eye and he just watched her for a while. He, she was the boyfriend of one of the guys that were at the party. He waited for these guys to go get more drinks like at the liquor store and he cornered her. He made unwanted sexual advances towards this woman, including groping her. He fondled her and she like tried to run out, but he just followed her. Ugh. That literally yeah. gave me like chills. Mm-hmm. But the guys got home, like, right then, and he got into it with the men. They were like, get the fuck out of here. And after about an hour of him telling the men that no one could make him do anything that he didn't want to do, he finally left. But he returned a little bit later to get a pack of cigarettes that he had left. They called the police on him. When he was being escorted out, that twenty-two fell out of his belt because he just had it stuck in his belt holder. And so he was arrested and sent to jail. His dad bailed him out immediately, and he was sent back to L.A. to live with his grandma, Holly. The mental health issues just escalated. He was convinced that he had a vitamin C deficiency, so he would wrap a towel that was filled with oranges around his head so that the vitamin C would seep back into his head. Like, I've done some weird shit in my life. Via osmosis. He would go into his room and stand on his head to get the blood flow back. And at one point, she heard him start talking and answering himself, saying things like, Richard, aren't you a good boy? And he responded to himself like, yes, I am a good boy. And she was like, "Mm -mm, nope, 
<laughs> this ain't it. You got to get out of here, kid. Back in Sacramento, because he only lasted a couple months with Grandma Holly, the bickering with his parents continued. He called EMS one day because he, he was convinced that he was going into cardiac arrest. They arrived. They determined that he was 100% physically fine. But the paramedic was like, oh, maybe you should take him to the hospital because he could tell that there was something psychological going on with this man. He was admitted to the American River Hospital in December of 1973. Dr. Irwin Lyons really had his hands full when he examined Chase because Chase was like, okay, this is what's happening to me. My heart is stopping. My blood isn't flowing. My kidneys aren't working. I have a constant stomach ache because my stomach is turned around backwards. I have a hernia and someone stole my pulmonary artery. He's still going on about that pulmonary artery, mm -hmm. huh? And so they did several tests. They all were perfectly normal. So Dr. Lyons was like, Julia, have you ever experienced any hallucinations? Have you heard any voices? And Chase is like, no, man, but I do have this aneurysm and I need to be in ICU immediately. What did the doctor say? Dr. Lyons believed that he was suffering from chronic acute paranoid schizophrenia. But he couldn't rule out that because of his heavy drug use, specifically the LSD, he, that Chase wasn't experiencing a drug-induced toxic psychosis. And Dr. Lyons is like, I think you should stay with us inpatient. But Chase was like, mm, don't like that. And he checked himself out. His mom brought him back pretty quick after that. But then she immediately checked him out again, which I still don't understand. Well, it just seems like they're, I mean, they're just... <laughs> they're not addressing their pro his problems. They're just, they keep trying to like solve them for him, you know, and he's. Yeah. And that's, I was going to say that. And I know we've been like eaten alive before for being like parent shaming. And I am the same way. Like I am the first one to be like, there's nothing wrong with my kid. Like, <laughs> nope, couldn't be me. Couldn't be him. Couldn't be them, whatever. But at a certain point, because it is hard. It is hard to like, you can tell that something is up with your kid. And it's hard to, you know, take that step back and be like, okay, I think he needs more care and more help than what I can give. And also and, because it does like reflect on you, you know, and you are kind of, it is like holding up a mirror. You're like, well, if he's like this, is is it because of me? And instead of like handling it, you know, I see like the defensiveness comes in the form of taking I care. Yeah, and I think especially with his mom, because she had some of the same issues. Mm -hmm. The cycle, his mom, like, took him home, and the cycle of chaos began again. And he even started, again, we're going to talk more about animal, you know, cruelty to animals. So gets a little, it's just, shit gets bad. Um, He started torturing the family's German shepherd. He would just stab the paws of the dog. During another instance, he grabbed the dog by the snout and squeezed it until he almost cracked the dog's skull with his bare hands. Oh, my God. And the dog struggled with eating after this. His parents finally were like, okay, you cannot live in either of our houses. So they decided instead of taking him back to the mental institution, that had the best course of action was for him to have his own apartment by himself. And this is just where shit really went nuts. He started collecting rabbits. He would visit a rabbit farm almost every day, buy them constantly, and he would either cut the rabbits open, eating the entire 
insides raw and then drinking the rabbit's blood or he would literally just grind the rabbit up into thick smoothies and drink them. When his dad visited him weekly, because his dad was like, I still want him to be alone. I still want him to like have access to his family. And he would come hang out, bring groceries. He was like, hey, what are you doing with all of these rabbits? And Chase was just like, I'm eating them. He did tell them. Straight up. Like, I'm hungry, Yeah, he did tell them how he was eating them, just that he was. And honestly, this was one of the, like, to his dad, he's like, all right, you know, out of all the weird shit you've been doing, this ain't that bad. You're eating rabbits. This is the least weird. (laughs) The next time Richard Sr. came to visit, which was just a few days later, he noticed the front door of the apartment was wide open and a horrific smell was just radiating out. It was more, like, significantly more potent than the normal poor hygiene smell that he had become accustomed to with his son. Because, like, you know, he never showered. Mm -hmm. Inside, he found Richard Jr. stripped down to his underwear, covered in, and completely surrounded by vomit. He told his dad that he had blood poisoning from a rabbit that he ate that must have eaten battery acid or something that was making him sick. But when the doctors examined him, he was literally going into septic shock. And the doctors were like, no, this isn't this isn't a food poisoning. This isn't something he ate. Like, this is likely caused by a dirty needle. He didn't have any of the normal track marks that you would have by someone who was abusing drugs. Uh-huh. And he told them, he's like, no, no, no. It's because I'm eating these rabbits. He told them that he had to eat these rabbits because his blood was turning to dust and his circulatory system wasn't working anymore but really he was using a dirty needle but it wasn't to inject drugs it was to inject rabbit blood directly into his veins <laughs> mm-hmm. so he was but in the hospital marks from where he was injecting it it didn't they said that he didn't have the typical track marks that they would have but he was inject i don't know where the hell he was actually injecting it um. Um, after he, so he was in the hospital for a while recovering. And then the doctor was like, okay, you have to go back to the American river hospital and you're going to be there on a 14 day involuntary hold. And he was pissed. Cause he, in his head, he was still in the hospital because he ate, he had like, he thought he had food poisoning. Even though they were like, no dude, you're going to die. If you don't, <laughs> you have a gnarly mm-hmm. infection from injecting rabbit's blood. When he was there, he was combative. He barely spoke. He just seemed really out of it. Um, it was clear that he needed more intensive care than what the American River Hospital could offer. So he was transferred to Beverly Manor, which is a psychiatric hospital, for like more intense cases. He was started on medications that helped his schizophrenia symptoms, but the desire for blood consumption did not change. He was accused of killing birds while he was there to drink their blood um one of the nurses said that one time she had noticed there was a bunch of dead birds around like the windows of his room and she went in there and he had blood all over his face and he was like oh i cut myself shaving and she's like that's weird because you can't have sharp things what are you doing um while he was at beverly manor it was determined that his parents needed to be his conservators and Honestly, he went along with it. He was fine with it. And by September of 1976, he had made enough improvements that the doctors felt that he could be discharged. 
But they were the only ones. The staff that actually attended to him every day, they went ballistic when they heard he was going to be released. They knew it was only a matter of time before something horrible happened. Looking back, I don't think they had any, there was no way they could have, like, just at what level of horrificness was going to happen. But they knew. They were like, uh-uh, he needs to stay here. Someone's going to get hurt. And once he was home, he was doing pretty good. Um, He was taking his medicine. He was, you know, kind of stabilizing. His mom said that the medications he was on, because this, you know, it's 1976. We don't have the tools now, I guess, for medications for like schizophrenia patients. Um, And the side effects back then were pretty significant. And she said that the side effects made him a literal zombie. Like he was not himself. And it, Yeah, that's good. We don't want him to be himself. Yeah, we don't want him to be himself. But this stressed her out so much that she weaned him off of his medications. She's like, you know what? I don't even think he really needs this stuff. I think that it's a fair time to parent shame. Okay. But I also think that she I also think that she was probably mentally ill as well. So um Yeah, because I think I mean, we still kind of see it in like boomer parents, Gen X parents to their like millennial gen z kids where it's like hey i handled this look how good i handle this you should be able to too and we're like you're not handling this (laughs) i did it and i turned out fine so you can do it too that like you didn't Mm -hmm. turn out fine yep so she weaned him off of his medicine she weaned him off of his medicine and pretty quickly the hypochondria set back in and he was convinced he was suffering from a blood clot he began torturing the family dog again kind of the the end for the way his family dynamic was um one night his mom heard a gunshot so she walked outside to find her son covered in blood holding a gun in one hand and the family cat in the other and he just kneeled down flipped the cat over onto his back and ripped it open with his bare hands and then just smeared the cat's blood all over his face and, like, was yelling out as he was doing it. I, again, I wish you could hear my face. And mm-hmm. gross. He would bring, he had, like, so he's still living in, like, his own apartment. He would just bring pets in constantly. But none of the pets were ever seen again after they came into his house. And during this time, he was still going to the doctors very frequently, but it just wasn't for his mental health. He he was going for all of these like ailments he had made up. He shaved his head because he was convinced that his skull bones were not connected and they were moving underneath his skin. In like, August, like of, a baby. Yeah, like exactly like a baby. In August of 1977, a call came in about a man wandering around wandering around his like the truck was there and he was just kind of like wandering around this like reservation police went and tribal police went and they found a ford ranchero stuck pretty deep in the sand so they take a look inside inside there were two loaded guns that were covered in blood there was a pile of men's clothing found also covered in blood on the floor of the truck cab was an entire liver just sitting in a pool of blood. And with the size of it, they were convinced that it belonged to a human. So they were like, okay, they're on these like four-wheelers looking for whoever could have done this. 
And a mile away, they find a man sitting on a small cliff, like over this little desert area, completely naked, covered in blood. The man, who surprise, surprise, was Richard Chase Jr., first said that all of the blood was his and that it was just seeping out of him and he couldn't stop it. Then he said, I killed rabbits. All this blood is from rabbits. But it would be determined that he had killed a cow in the same manner that he did the rabbits, the dogs, and the cats. And that's what the liver belonged to was this cow. Surprisingly. Size comparison on a human liver to a cow liver. I have no idea. Um, oh, slightly smaller. Oh, you looked it up. What did you say it yeah, was? I it was sm- it. The, it's smaller. Slightly smaller, but they look pretty close. Oops, it looks gross. I don't want to look at this anymore. Okay, you keep going. <laughs> the U.S. deputy attorney actually declined to press charges after they realized it was a cow and not a human. Um, and a few days later, he was sent back to Sacramento. Once back home, the abuse and torture of animals continued. At one point, he even kidnapped a dog. And then when he saw the missing report in the paper, he called the owners and told them what he had done to the dog. Just completely bash it. Mm-hmm. And again, he started the process of where he would work here and there. And anytime, anytime he did this, his parents would be like, okay, he's getting his life together. Like now is the time when he's like, he's getting his life together. But he obviously like he wasn't. Um, Not getting it together, huh? Not even a little. During one of his short stints of having a job, he saved up enough money again to go buy another gun. And they asked him, have you ever been committed to a psychiatric hospital? He was like, Mm-mm, nope, never. Not once. Not even once. Not even that one time that you definitely don't know about. He left without the gun because of the waiting period, went home, came back and got it. Christmas came and he did spend significant time with his family this Christmas. But when it came time for him to go to his mom's house for Christmas dinner, she was like, you cannot come here. Because he had murdered and dismembered her cat in front of her, his younger sister Pamela was like, I am not, like, he cannot come here. Like, I'm not going to be here if he's here. And this is what he claims ultimately made him snap. This final betrayal from his family even though they did spend time with him his grandma came she was like happy to see him like showered and he had like had new clothes on his mom took him out stink so nice like oh it's good she like she realized how like said he looked so good she gave him ten dollars she's like all right here you go here's ten bucks for taking a bath you stinky monster his mom took him out to dinner they went to his apartment he had christmas presents but their hard limit was his him coming to the house. And honestly, like, I don't fucking blame him. I'd be like, Mm-mm, you could never Not come at all. here. But like I said, this is what he said made him snap. And with that, I will pass it to Meg. All right. So a couple days after Christmas on December 29th, 1977, the Sacramento County Sheriff's Department was dispatched to a shooting that had occurred at a home on Robertson Avenue. Ambrose Griffin had been taken to the emergency room where he had died from his injuries. His wife, Carol, told investigators that her husband had been helping her bring in the groceries from the trunk of the car when she heard two popping noises and then her husband crying out. Carol had run out the front door to see what was going on, and she described Ambrose turning toward her and collapsing onto the ground. 
she screamed at their two sons to call for help because she thought that Ambrose had just had a heart attack. Neighbors were coming out to see what was going on, and Carol was sobbing. She was like, he's just the right age for a heart attack. But what she hadn't realized was that her, was that her husband had actually just been shot in his own yard by 22 caliber bullets. Ambrose Griffin was an engineer for the Federal Bureau of Land Management. He was only 51 years old. His family and co-workers all described him as an even-tempered man who loved and supported his family. There was no one that would want to shoot him. As the investigation continued, his sons, Bob and Rick, claimed that on the day of the shooting, they had seen a man with a hunting rifle on their street. But their dad hadn't been shot with a hunting rifle, and the man that they claimed to have seen had an alibi because he had been at work. But there was a guy walking around their neighborhood with a hunting rifle, which is like, what the heck's going on in Sacramento? And Yeah, who's getting all, like, just a typical Tuesday. people doing? Hmm. Um, police questioned neighbors and those who lived on streets surrounding the Griffin home and found that several of them had heard the gunshots that had murdered Ambrose, but none of them thought that it was an emergency. No, nobody thought anything about it until emergency vehicles started arriving. Uh, many people in the area were like, oh, we know who did it. Uh, but as we often see, they were suggesting people that they thought they were just like, oh, they have guns, or they just don't seem right to me, or they've got a bad reputation, and none of their eyewitness accounts were correct. No one could agree on the type of vehicle that had been in the neighborhood. Some people said it was a Chevy. Some people said it was a Pontiac or a Ford or a truck. No one was quite sure what they had seen, and there was an area in the neighborhood that people regularly went and like shot cans and did target practice. So that was another reason why when they heard the shots, no one really paid it any mind. Around 10 a.m. on December 30th, a news crew that had arrived to cover the murder found two spent shell casings from the bullets that had murdered Ambrose Griffin, which is embarrassing for the cops. Because yeah, that's extremely embarrassing. Like the news shows up and they're like, we found them. Um, but they thought that they had been run over by a vehicle and they were just hidden by that. So because, you know, emergency response teams think in seconds, they're like, we have to get there where they're not worried about messing stuff up. They're just worried yeah, yeah, about who true. they're going to save. Um, but as the investigation continued un to unfold, it began to seem like this drive-by shooting of a 51-year-old family man in his front yard had just been completely random. And their first real clue into Ambrose's murder came from a 12-year-old boy who had been riding his bike near a drugstore that was close to the neighborhood. The boy claimed that he had been riding his bike when a Pontiac Trans Am traveling in the opposite direction caught his eye. As the vehicle passed him, he said the driver was a 20-something male with brown hair, pointed a short-barreled gun at him, and pulled the trigger. The boy wasn't hit, but he fell off of his bike, and he was, as you might expect, pretty shaken up by the whole thing. Uh, and he was described by the people that him as a good kid. He was like, he's not going to lie to get attention. So with yeah, his parents, and what a description. <laughs> yeah. Like, that's hey, pretty, like, this is exactly what happened. Yeah, that's not, it doesn't seem like he's going too far over the top. He's like, there was a cool car. I saw it. And then the driver pointed a gun and shot at me. Like, 
that's pretty cut and dry, I think. Yeah. Um, and because it was the 70s, uh, with his parents' permission, investigators requested that he be hypnotized and questioned in case he had blocked anything out. Um, so hypnosis was still being used as a forensic technique. It's discouraged now because people who undergo hypnosis are susceptible to, you know, like suggestive questioning or nonverbal cueing. It's even, they can mix reality and fantasy. Uh, in this case, after undergoing hypnosis, that kid was able to give further details about the car, its driver. He remembered the license plate number as being 219 EEP, and they ran it, and it wasn't connected to a Trans Am or any owners in Sacramento. So you can see the hypnosis issue here. He remembered the number, but there wasn't a match. Um, it just... They had an idea of what they thought this person might look like now, but the car thing kind of fell through. The investigation marched on, and they began to review police reports filed in the days before the shooting of Ambrose, hoping to find something that just might get things moving. And they did. Two days before, on December 27th, Dorothy Polinsky had been doing dishes when she heard a loud pop, following by a shattering of glass or followed by a shattering of glass as her kitchen window was blasted apart by a bullet that had just traveled through it. And Dorothy herself was fine, but there was no evidence, so her case was just filed away as a random shooting. They were just like, well, sorry someone shot through your window, that sucks, nothing we can do. And then the detectives, after they went back and found this, they are like, oh, this is pretty close to, the Ambro to Ambrose's house, let's go question her. And Dorothy was super accommodating. The detectives searched her kitchen high and low, and they found a single 22 caliber slug stuck in a shelf. They took it to their crime lab, and it was confirmed that that bullet was from the same weapon that had killed Ambrose Griffin. So just a few days before, there was another shooting in the neighborhood that didn't end in death, and then there was Ambrose. Less than two weeks after the drive-by shooting, a woman named Dawn Larson was checking her mail when her neighbor from apartment 15 stopped her. Dawn had tried to talk to this neighbor before, and he had never returned any of her salutations. He was never friendly. Usually he just kind of like shuffled through their complex and didn't speak to anyone. Dawn had heard on a few occasions loud popping noises coming from his apartment, but an occasional disturbance was no reason to report a usually quiet neighbor, so she had just ignored it. Um, but she didn't see this neighbor often either. She had once seen him carrying a puppy, and another time he had another dog, and at one point he had taken a cat. All of these animals went into his apartment, but she couldn't remember ever seeing them come out again. And there was a no pets rule in this apartment complex that he lived in. So she was like, well, maybe he's pet sitting or dog walking. She never, she tried to not think about it. Yeah, and so like, Nate, that is not what you're going to think of. You're not going to think like, oh, he's in there eating these dogs. He's, in, yeah. you know, he's killing them. He's in there ripping them open with his bare hands and drinking their blood. That's definitely yeah. what's happening. Now that's what I'm going to think when I see people taking puppies to the trap. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's, I'm not going to think that, maybe. So her neighbor spoke to her for the first time and asked her for a cigarette. And she was like, oh, yeah, for sure. And she gave him one and she turned to walk away before she felt his hand grab her shoulder and demand that she give him 
the entire pack. And so she was like, take it. And he left her alone. On January 23rd, 1978, a woman named Jean Light Layton watched as a man with unkempt brown hair attempted to open her back patio door. She watched in horror as he attempted to open all the windows on the back of her house before standing in front of the back door again. And she made eye contact with him through the door, and then the man just apologized before he lit a cigarette and walked away. And she was scared because someone had just tried to get into her home, mm -hmm. but she was like, he didn't really do anything other than try to get in, and I'm not going to call police because that's making too much of a fuss. Which says not making too much of a fuss if you ever that think someone's not. breaking into your house. Call the police. Give him a ring. Couldn't hurt. 30 minutes later, Robert and Barbara Edwards returned to their home after running to the grocery store. As they entered their home, they heard the footsteps of someone inside. They heard a door slam, and a moment later, that same dirty, unkempt man that had just opened a woman's back door and made eye contact... He made eye contact with the couple whose home he had just unlawfully entered. Robert Edwards demanded that the man stop. He was like, hey, stop right there. But the guy pushed past him, ran out the door and down the block, and Robert chased him. He was like, stop, I'm going to get you. Um, but he didn't, and Edwards returned to his home out of breath in order to survey the damage that the trespasser had caused. And what he found was, to use my very own description, real gross there were things that indicated that like this had been a burglary that was interrupted because all of their jewelry had been stuffed into a single box they had binoculars a cassette player a dagger a stethoscope it was all in like a cloth sack and i'm picturing like a burlap sack but i feel yeah like me too case. um their house was a wreck but in their child's bedroom this man had peed on all of the freshly folded baby clothes and then pooped in the middle of their kid's bed. Just fresh juice so in their baby's gross. room. What the heck? Um, and because this happened so close to the time and location that the woman had seen this man trying to enter her home, Gene Lawton was like, oh yeah, because they came around and questioned her. They're like, hey, have you seen anybody? And she was like, yeah, this guy actually just tried to break into my home. So they had a description there. They had a description from this couple. And this was a dirty man with brown hair. He was tall. He was skinny. He was wearing an orange parka. And the orange parka is going to come up a lot. It's like this huge telltale sign. One, for being in Sacramento, because it's like, it's it's probably cold for people in Sacramento, but I feel like it's not parka cold, you know? Maybe. Yeah, yeah. Maybe it's I don't really know Sacramento winners, but. <laughs> I was just like, it's, he's wearing this orange parka. So only an hour after this guy shit in a kid's bed and ran off, Nancy Holden was walking through a grocery store when the same filthy man, who appeared to be under the influence of something, stopped her and asked her if she had been on the motorcycle when Kurt had died. She was surprised because she had dated a man named Kurt and he had been killed in a motorcycle accident 10 years before. She didn't answer him, and instead she was just like, who are you? The man said, I'm Rick Chase. That man had once been a boy that she attended high school with. She made polite small talk and tried to get the hell away from him because he made her uncomfortable, but she found that he was like cornering her in other areas of the grocery store. 
and then he eventually asked her for a ride and Nancy declined. She went and checked out and he followed her. She was like running to her car. She threw the bags in and locked her doors. And Richard Chase followed her outside and was attempting to open her car door when she drove away as quickly as she could. Richard Chase wandered so scary. from... It is scary. Like, not only is this man cornering you in the grocery store, but he's like, you tell him no, you may not have a ride. And then he tries to get into your car anyways. Ah. And she was, she said that she was, um, she couldn't wait to tell her sister about this guy because she didn't remember him like this from high school. He had been uh, a little bit, he'd been cleaner. He had been more sane when she saw him last. But honestly, from your description of his teenage years, I don't know how true that is. So Richard Chase wandered away from the market and made his way into a neighborhood next to that grocery store. Teresa Wallen, a brunette, 22-year-old, was alone in her home when Richard Chase entered her home through an unlocked front door. Teresa and her husband, David, lived in their three-bedroom Sacramento home in what felt like a pretty nice and safe neighborhood, because it was. They had plans to start a family, and Teresa was described as infectiously happy. When Richard Chase entered her home, he was heading, she was heading toward the front door to take out the trash. So they came face to face in the front room where Richard immediately raised his 22 caliber gun and shot her twice. Teresa had instinctually just raised her hands in front of her and the first bullet went through her right palm and exited through her elbow. And then the second bullet went through her head, which caused her to collapse. Chase moved next to the woman, aimed his gun at her left temple, and fired again, and Teresa Wallen's life was taken from her. Chase then dragged Teresa's body down the hallway toward her bedroom, where he placed her on a large waterbed and proceeded to butcher her. She wasn't found until after 5 p.m. when her husband returned home from work and found that his wife of two and a half years had been brutally murdered. I can't even imagine. No. And I don't want to. Like, No, I don't either. Horrifying. And um, we are going to go through some of the details of these cases. And I, they're, they are horrific. So here we go. Uh, detectives arrived. They questioned the neighbors. A lot of them had seen a strange man wearing an orange parka. And when they looked over Teresa's body. She was in a state of undress. Her pants and underwear had been pulled down. Her shirt was lifted, exposing her breasts and revealing that the killer had removed one of her nipples. And the murder was much more, just much, it was terrible. Uh, he had stabbed her in her stomach with such force that her sternum and breastplate split open. And then he proceeded to open her stomach. The doctor that conducted her autopsy suggested that Chase had cut her open in eight separate areas. Her kidneys had been removed and then placed back into her body. And it was evident that Richard Chase had taken his time dissecting Teresa's body. What made this even more horrific was that inside of Teresa was a three-month-old fetus. Ugh. And to continue to add insult to injury, Richard Chase allegedly also put dog poop into her mouth after she had been murdered. So, 
Yeah. Obviously. Horrified. Law enforcement distributed a crime bulletin to other law enforcement agencies because it was so... They were just like, we have to find who did this. This is horrifying. Yeah, Uh, yeah. contained sketches of what Richard Chase might look like based on eyewitness accounts. And it read... On January 23rd, 1978, between 9.30 and 1.30, Teresa Lynn Wallen, 22 years old, was murdered in her residence at 26.30 Tioga Way. She was shot three times with a 22 caliber weapon. The body was then mutilated by an incise wound in the abdomen. The weapon used was probably a sharp knife with a blade six inches or longer. Garbage was strewn all over the living room floor. There does not appear to have been anything taken from the residence, and there is no evidence of forced entry. The subject in the artist's sketch is wanted for a burglary that occurred on the same day. At approximately 1,100 hours, the suspect defecated in the residence and urinated on clothes and dresser drawers. The suspect was apparently preparing to remove a decorative sword and dagger, but was surprised by the homeowner. The suspect was chased several blocks. White male adult, early to mid-20s, 5'10 to 6 foot, slim build, dark brown hair, blue Levi's, black tennis shoes, orange jacket. And that is such an escalation. Yes. From give me a ride to uh, just animals to people. I mean, he'd been escalating for such a long time, though. Yep. Like, mm-hmm. it's... And you have to realize that this time, the East... Like, this is the... They called this guy the East Area, like, serial killer. But the East Area rapist, who I will yeah. probably cover, was also at large in the area. And he had been at large for two years. So there was, like, a huge task force dedicated to figuring out who the East Area rapist, that is not Richard Chase, was. And to have a serial killer hop into the mix at this time was not a good look. And they were kind of shorthanded because they were so focused on that first guy. And there's there's other stuff going on in Sacramento. Sacramento was having a time in the late 70s. They were, we'll talk about it at the end too, but there's another thing that was going on that was kind of taking away manpower so this case inevitably gets solved by like three people like there's a lot of people working on it but there's three people that really like grind ground down and were the ones that got it together and in addition to this there's also you know all these witness accounts and again the incorrect suggestions of who might be responsible still coming through so they're getting all these bad leads david wallen uh teresa's husband her sister-in-law's sisters-in-law had told police that they thought Teresa had been murdered by a jealous ex-lover that had ruined David and Teresa's wedding because she had followed the groom around telling him that she still loved him. And so they went and questioned that woman, and she did have the motive, but her location was accounted for during the murder. Also, the head detective on this said that he was so convinced that it was a man because of how just like grotesque and intense the murders were that he like he had let it cloud his judgment and hadn't even considered that it might be a woman so that i mean it wasn't but the idea that it could have been and he wasn't even thinking about it yeah it bothered him he said over the next several days 
Reports came from a residential area near Teresa Wallen's home. A man described as dirty, ratty, string-haired, strange, weird. He'd been combing the area and knocking on doors requesting magazines. One couple had sold him two puppies and later found that evening that one of the puppies had been shot and then its stomach had been cut open. Investigators prowled the area, but it seemed as though the man we know as Richard Chase was just one step ahead. And I don't think he was one step ahead. I think he was just moving in a state of psychosis. Like he was just nonstop yeah. going. Yeah, yeah. Evelyn Maroth was a 30-something-year-old single mother who lived with her 12- and 6-year-old sons. She was very involved in her community. She regularly hosted events on the weekends, and she was well-loved by her family and friends. One of her very best friends, Neon, lived right across the street from her. On Friday, January 27, 1978, Evelyn's six-year-old son, Jason, was going to go with Neon and her children on a day trip. It had snowed recently, some cold weather had come through, and so they were going to go to the Sierra Nevada mountain range and have just like a little snow day. At 9 a.m., Evelyn called Neon to tell her that she was going to grab Jason some snowshoes before they left. So could they leave just like a little bit later? And she was like, the plan was to leave at 10, but I'm fine if we need to leave later. No big deal. At around 9.30, Evelyn's friend Danny pulled into the driveway of Evelyn's home. And Neon saw his car pull in and she's like, oh, I bet she, Danny's going to go get those snowshoes for her so she can get ready. By 11, Neon was ready to go, uh, but she hadn't heard from Evelyn. And at 11.30, she and her daughter crossed the street to ask Evelyn if they were ready, if Jason could leave. And no one answered the door. And so she was like, well, I guess we're going to go without him. But on her way out of the neighborhood, she did speak to a few of the other neighbors that were out in the morning and was just like, hey, you know, Jason was supposed to come with us. And I spoke to Evelyn earlier, but it's strange. It's just not like her uh, that she wouldn't even let us know about her changing her mind or just not answering the door. And another of their friends, Nancy, also agreed that it was unlike Evelyn. And she kind of took matters into her own hands. She was like, I'm going to go check on her. So she went to the unlocked back door and made her way inside to look for Evelyn herself. And the next sound that came from that home was the sound of Nancy's scream because she had found Danny face down on the floor surrounded by what she believed was blood. Nancy ran from the house and called for help. Ivan Clark, a sheriff's deputy, arrived at 12.43, and it seemed like the entire neighborhood was waiting outside to find out what was going on. The deputy entered the home expecting to just do a welfare check. He thought that Danny was maybe drunk and passed out. But what he noticed that Nancy had not was that there were bullet holes in Danny's head. He continued through the house and entered the master bedroom. And again, a trigger warning here because of how he found Evelyn Maroth. She was fully nude, hair still wet from the shower. Her stomach had been cut open and her internal organs were spilling out of the nine-inch incision she had along her abdomen. There was a bloodstained butcher knife next to her left hand and a carving knife on the bed above her. Her right eyeball had been partially removed and a portion of her liver was missing. 
It also appeared as though she had been stabbed in the rectum several times and then raped post-mortem. Uh. Yeah. The deputy had seen video evidence of Teresa Wallen, and he was like, this is that. This is the same thing. Like, it looked just like a repeat of what had happened to Teresa. So he called for backup, and they were kind of in a dead zone, so he was having a hard time conveying the emergency. Um, But he was like, get these people here, even though Richard Chase had been wandering around that neighborhood for an entire week leading up to this. Detectives arrived and made their way through Evelyn's home while going over the details of the murder in her bedroom. Six-year-old Jason was found next to the bed that his mutilated mother was hanging off of, and he had also been shot in the head twice with twenty-two caliber bullets. Oh, I hate that so much. Yeah. So um, Danny, Evelyn, and Jason were all murdered in the home with twenty-two caliber bullets. Only Evelyn was mutilated. And what comes next is kind of like the beginning of the end of like Chase's serial killing spree because when he had heard that knock at the door from Neon and her daughter he got scared and he had driven off in Danny's 1972 red Ford station wagon that he had a Danny had shown up in that and so he heard that knock he got scared and he took the keys and jumped into it So he took not only a car that they could track, but he also left his footprints in the house after he tracked his shoes through all of the blood. Um, And he also wore rubber gloves, which made like these ring-like prints. And so those ring-like fingerprints were at Teresa's and they were also at Evelyn's and they noticed them. They were like, those are the same ones that were here. Um, Evelyn had sent Danny after those snowshoes, and when he had arrived at her house with them, he walked right into Richard Chase's massacre. So it made him uh, the fourth victim in the home. And if you were like, wait, who was the third? I can assure you that this story gets much worse, if you can believe that. Mm. Uh, Because how can it get worse than a murdered child and his mother? Well, at... 3.30 p.m., uh, a woman named Karen arrived at the Maroth residence because she had left her 22-month-old son with her sister-in-law, Evelyn, that morning. Evelyn wasn't going to the mountain with her son and the neighbors because she had already agreed to babysit for Karen that day. And while detectives had been distracted by the absolute nightmare that they found in the home that afternoon, um... They had yet to search the bedroom where an empty crib sat. Almost two-year-old David was missing, but all of his belongings were still in the home, meaning that Richard Chase had taken David and there was no way to know if he was dead or alive at that time. At five... Ugh. Mm Mm-hmm. I... And... uh, Evelyn's brother's name was Tony... And so Tony and Karen had to just wait at the house for no news other than them telling them that they assumed he was dead, but they couldn't confirm anything. So I don't know. That's all. It's so awful. And to like 
knowing the state that your sister was found in, mm-hmm. I can't and even. And knowing that your baby is with that person. Yeah, exactly. At 5 p.m. on the same day, the vehicle was located at an apartment complex less than a mile and a half away from Evelyn's home, but there was no sign of the driver or of baby David. They uh, went through the apartment and talked to everyone, but they did not find Richard Chase, and that was because Chase lived at a different apartment building just around the corner. There was like a fence that blocked them off, so he parked it in a parking lot that was not his building but it was close to his building. But investigators didn't know that. So instead, they arrested several suspects who all turned out to not be the guy they were looking for. There was one of particular interest who fit the description. Um, He had an orange jacket in his closet uh, because he had been watching the police activity when they found the station wagon and they came up to him and they're like, hey, what are you looking at? And he was like, really, this is all for a murder and because some guy cut up some bodies. And like that wasn't hidden news. They knew like that was that news was presented to the public. But they were like, yeah, you were pretty quick on that. So we're going to arrest you. But he was cleared. And he had like some ugly ass jacket. His wife (laughs) had an ugly jacket. They were like, man, I really almost went to jail for this dumb jacket. Uh, and what I consider to be one of the crazier parts of this case occurred the next day on the 28th because people were calling to report every strange man that could be responsible because, again, these murders and mutilations were public knowledge. Uh, and Sacramento was scared. So they were like, if they thought they saw someone, they were going to call and report it. And in addition to that, and the East Area rapist, the Manson family was also active in this area at the time because Charles Manson was in Folsom prison and one of his cult followers had recently attempted to assassinate Gerald Ford. So not only do they have this rapist. What a fucking time, man. Yeah. You got the Manson family. You got this rapist who's raped like 30 people. You got the serial killer roaming the street. Sacramento is not having a great time right now. Not at all. They're a little nervous, and so there's lots of calls coming in. But they're following up on all the calls that they can. So the people taking witness calls got a call from a sergeant at the county marshal's office, and this guy had called because his daughter-in-law had a run-in with a person at a grocery store. She said his name was Rick Chase, and she had gone to high school with him, and they were checking everyone out, so they ran his name through the DMV, and it came back that his address was in that one to two mile radius that they were searching for. He was 5'11", he weighed 140 pounds, he had brown hair, all of these characteristics. So they're like, oh, we're just going to go to the apartment and chat with him. But the apartment listed on his address was apartment 12, and he had recently moved to apartment 15. So they called Nancy Holden, the woman who had narrowly avoided Chase at the grocery store on the morning of Teresa Wallen's murder. So just pure happenstance that her father-in-law works at the county marshal's office and he's like, hey, I'm going to call this in for you because yeah, like, this she is a had big told deal, him about it. Yeah. Yeah. So they call her and she describes him and what he was wearing, orange parka blue jeans black shoes looks dirty and they're like um we've been trying to get leads on this guy for a week where have you been but she had gone out of town to visit her in-laws and so 
they were like, can you please come downtown so we can talk to you? And she went and they ran Chase's name um, through their system and it came back with his concealed weapons charges. The fact that he had been a violent mental patient, the fact that he was a suspect in a shooting in 1968. Uh, and they learned because he had had to go to like court and he had been in the hospital that he lived in apartment 15, not in apartment 12. So they had been so close, but not close enough. So they're like, all right, let's go to apartment 15. And they went and knocked and no one answered. So detectives were admitted by management into an empty apartment next door. They're like, go into this apartment and see if you can hear if anyone is even in there because they were playing it very carefully. They didn't want to like bust in the door and mess up any chance they had of like nailing this guy. Uh, they knocked again and still no answer, but they could hear that someone was in the apartment. So they just called him. They like picked up a phone and they called his number and he answered. And they were like, Richard Chase? He's like, yeah, who's this? He's like, it's me, Bill, remember? He's like, I don't think I know you. And he hung up. But like, <laughs> bro, you are a, you are wanted man. Do not answer your <laughs> phone, you dumbass. Oh my God, I know. But I'm glad you did. I'm glad you did, you dingling. Um, so these two homicide detectives, they're like, okay, here's what we're going to do. And they just talk real loud. And they're like, all right, well, we're going to leave, but we're going to come back later. And then they just like walked off to eat two separate sides and waited for him to come out. They're like, he's going <laughs> to run. I know. It's like a Bugs Bunny. It is like, I was just thinking that like, what in the Warner Brother bullshit is that? <laughs> like, all right, we'll be back later. Don't you go anywhere. And so they go to two separate sides. And sure enough, door to apartment 15 opens and Richard Chase walks out of his apartment with a box and starts to leave and they're like hey stop in the name of the law and they start chasing him and a foot chase ensued and they had to shoot him to get him to stop and then he's tackled down and he's trying to fight him off because he has a shoulder holster with a gun in it so they're like trying to get that off of him and get handcuffs on him and they finally get him down they get a look at him and he is still wearing this same exact outfit the jeans the shoes the orange coat everything is covered in blood oh, he has he the 22 oh. what'd you say you know he fucking stinks yeah for sure and he's got the gun on him and not only that in chase's back pocket was danny's wallet with all of his cards, his driver's license. He had photos of Jason and Evelyn in his wallet. And he was also carrying a large pair of rubber gloves. And then the box he was carrying was just full of like paper covered in blood and like clothes covered in blood. Where's the baby? We haven't found the baby yet. We're getting there. Hang in there. They drove him to the police station. And while they were driving, the only thing he said was, my apartment's a lot cleaner, isn't it? And he said, I didn't do anything in my apartment except kill a couple of dogs. So they took him in for questioning and he denied doing anything. He was like, no, I didn't do that. Nope. I just killed a couple of dogs. And they were like, are you a liar? And Chase said that he almost always told the truth. So the, there was an issue. Do we need to get a search warrant to go into his apartment? And they were like, no, because we're looking for this baby. We have to find David. So they entered Richard Chase's apartment in an attempt to look for David. 
but the baby was not there. They did find a list of horrors in his apartment, though. There were miscellaneous papers on human anatomy. There were newspaper articles about the recent murders. There were um, organs in his refrigerator and brain in his refrigerator. There was bone. There was a plastic cup that looked like it had been full of blood at some point. And on the kitchen counter was a blender that had seen rabbits among other things. His questioning moved into the next day, and Richard did not waver until they showed him pictures of baby David, and then that was the only time that Richard Chase looked like he might cry. But he reeled it in and just continued his unending denial of committing any murders other than the dog's. And he was booked into jail on January 29th at 1230 in the morning. It wouldn't be until February 16th, more than two weeks later, that Richard Chase started talking to another inmate. They explained to inmate Wes Garrison, they're like, look, we're not going to give you a damn thing for talking to us. Like, you just need to tell us. And Wes was serving time for repeated drunk driving offenses. And he was like, I don't really want anything. I just feel like this is the right thing to do because this guy murdered a bunch of people. And also no one knows where this baby is still. So weeks have gone by. They still don't know where baby David is. It's evident that this man has murdered these people, but he's not talking to anyone except for this one inmate. And Chase told Garrison that he had blood poisoning and he needed to drink blood. So after he thought about it for a couple of weeks, Chase decided to start killing people in order to drink their blood. He explained how he had followed Teresa Wallen into her house. And when she screamed, he shot her before beginning to stab her and cut her open to drink her blood. He went on to describe a similar story in the death of Evelyn. Um but explained that a man had run in and he had, had, he had to shoot him in the head because he didn't want any witnesses. And then when he came back around the corner to come back to Evelyn, there had been a little boy standing there staring at him, so he shot him too. Richard Chase told Wes Garrison that after he had murdered those three, he heard a baby screaming and crying, and because it was making so much noise, he had shot the baby in the head as well. Oh. After he heard a knock at the door, he left taking the baby with him. When he arrived home, he drank baby David's blood and removed mm. some of his brain and put him in the garbage. Oh, my God. On March 24th, a janitor for a church near the apartment complex that Richard had lived in called police after he found a cardboard box with the remains of baby David. Um, mm. His head had been removed. Oh, my God. It was in the box with his body, but he had been mutilated as well. Richard Chase's trial didn't begin until January 2nd, 1979, so almost a year later. And as I'm sure you all have guessed, his defense was insanity, but several psychiatrists were like, no, we think you're sane enough to stand trial. And he did go through them he like he inevitably opened up and admitted 
to the murders of all six people and explain to the court. He was like, yeah, I started drinking rabbit blood and bird blood. And then I moved to cats and dogs and cows and then finally people. And he was apologetic. But they were like, no, no. In order to avoid the death penalty, the, his defense tried to have him found guilty of second degree murder so that he might just get life but the murders were found to be premeditated. And on May 8th, 1979, a jury found Chase guilty of six counts of first-degree murder, and then they were like, no, we, you are not, not guilty by reason of insanity, and he was sentenced to death in a gas chamber. However, on December 26th, 1980, Chase was found dead in his prison cell. Um, he had killed himself with an overdose of prescription medication. So he never got his, but I'm glad he died. And again, I am a, I am a anti-death penalty girly, but uh, that's one that could go down and I wouldn't blink an eye. I'd be like, wouldn't all blink right, an eye. that's Would fair. Would not blink an eye. Mm-mm. Take him. And I think it's sad because he truly was mentally ill. From a very early age. Like, he was. Again, I, there are people that are very mentally ill that exactly. are Exactly. I know some of them very well, and they are not doing these things. Like, they're not literally cutting people up and eating them. Exactly. That's a whole and different... There are plenty what? of people, overwhelming majority of people who are mentally ill, who suffer from paranoid schizophrenia drug-induced psychosis all these things that are not doing what he did that is just a bad egg i had read i did not read into detail about um all of the murders because i wanted to like listen to you tell me and i did not get to the baby david part we've had this case requested requested a lot in the last three years so i've skimmed the wiki I know, like, mm-hmm. I know the quotes from it where they're like, oh, he didn't go into houses that had unlocked door or that had locked doors because he thought he wasn't welcome. Like, that's this guy. Uh, oh, yeah, that I, that quote is one of the first quotes I had, like, heard when I started researching true crime cases and is why I lock my doors as much as I do. Because he was just like, yeah, if the door was locked, I didn't think I was welcome. And I thought, like, I I read that it was him, and I was like, oh, I thought that that was someone else. Like, I didn't associate it with him specifically initially. Um, But it was just one that I thought I I thought I knew, like, I thought I was familiar with, and I guess I just was not as familiar with it. No, it's like, I I I think I had the glossed over, like, the... uh, Like, oh, yeah, he ate people. Yeah, like, the TV version, the Lifetime movie version of him is what I knew, and, like... Not the Cinemax version. And I feel like I even like details. I feel like I tamed down the details as much as, you know, I'm able because we've talked about it before. Like there are some details that we like to give you, but like you don't always need them. You don't you can you listen to enough true crime. Use your imagination. You're probably right. Um, yeah, dude, this is an hour and a half of just all the horrific shit that he's done. No joke. From the time he was a teenager until he offed himself in his prison cell. Um, yeah. What the fuck? (laughs) 
I read that he um, had like hoarded his antidepressants and that's like how he took his life. It, but like uh, inmates were incur- other inmates were like, yeah, bro, you should. They were like, this. you should kill. You should do it. You should. Uh, you're going yeah. to anyways. I'm glad he took their advice. Um, yeah. What a nightmare. And he's so gross. Like you take away all of his murders and he's still a fucking gross dude. Like he Walker still is naked. ick factor 3000. There was one that he has a lot of different names, too. It's like the Vampire of Sacramento, the Dracula Killer, the East Area Serial Killer. It's, there's just, they gave him, and maybe that's part of why, like, I never looked much further into it other than, like, because I I was getting them all. I didn't realize they were all the same person, maybe. Dude, imagine being his dad and sharing the same name. No, I would change my name. I would, would too. I'd be like, I am... George, whatever. I am George. Costanza. Costanza. <laughs> that was before. <sighs> There's a lot There's of... There's a movie uh, called Rampage. Mm-hmm. That's... There's a, a investigation discovery, like, two-hour special. Uh, There's a song about him called Blood-Sucking Freak, Richard Tritt and Chase. I think it's a doom metal band. Uh, There's another song called House Sparrow. This guy is... So mm-hmm. if you need more content Dude, about this what a asshole. fucking time to live in Sacramento. Yeah, I would have moved 100%. <laughs> I'd be like, sorry, I can't. Like, there's been a rapist here for two years, and the Mance's family's active. Like, the second I heard that there was, like, a serial killer, I'd be like, all right, well, not that anyone's going to buy our house, <laughs> well, but I'm imagine- out of here. Imagine going like just to visit your in-laws and they're like, oh, how has your week been? And you're like, oh, my God, this guy I went to high school with, like, try to get him in like, the like, car? car. He was so gross. And then her father-in-law is like, uh, you know what? I am going to call about that because they've been asking everyone to for the last week. Like, everyone. I'm thankful he did call because who knows during like who knows what he would have done next uh yeah i it couldn't get much worse it couldn't get much worse no i my husband gets on me all the time because i keep my office door closed during the day and there are times like i'll because i'll go drop my daughter off at school and come back and i'm i don't like I have like a ring camera and stuff. So every time someone like comes up, I can see. But there are times like I'll get busy and I'll, you know, get the dog or something and I'll forget to lock the door. And he comes in. He's like, what the fuck are you doing? And I'm like, he's like, really? After everything you've researched, you don't lock the door every single time. I'm like, a bitch gets busy. I got a picture. I got a picture of it. Whoever's coming up here, I'm going to know. But he's right. Would you be able to run out there and lock the door in time? Mm Mm-mm. Mm-mm. I sure wouldn't. <laughs> sure would not. Just lock that door, baby. And the worst is like, I know we have guns around here somewhere. I just don't know where the fuck they are. <laughs> Give me a second. Uh, can you wait one second for me to like prepare for an intruder? Now, I do have a taser sitting right by my computer desk. Just you have a taser? <laughs> when did you get that? Uh, I got a couple years ago, 
it was in my van and then we got the new car and I just got my trusty old screwdriver in there now but I just kept getting worried that one of my kids was gonna find it and taste each other on accident <laughs> It's definitely going to happen. I can't wait. So for I was that like, text. I better put this up. In I the know office. exactly how the text is going to go. It's just going to be one text that says, dude. And I'm going to be like, what? Tell me. And you're going to be like, the little one tased the big one. I'm be like, yep. <laughs> That's who it would be. I, w- I was waiting for it. Congratulations. How's the ER? Well, also call CPS. Like CPS has been called. <laughs> so there's that as well. <laughs> Oh man. Um Yeah. What a what a time. It you know I, I think time. and the next time I go to Sacramento Sacramento Sacramento, I'll feel differently about it. Yeah. Like you shouldn't be there. I'm just kidding. <laughs> like, I'll just be like, joking you know to all of our Sacramento listeners. We had a couple. Actually, I think people who have lived in Sacramento who lived in Sacramento have suggested this to us. That would general. make sense. Yeah, they're like, Hey, you should probably do this one. It's kind of a big deal. I have usually when I work during the day, I will put on like an audio book. And then I decided I was like, I want to like I I would get distracted because I would be listening to my book. And then I'm like, shit, I got to work. So I had I was at Walmart and they had like a 24 inch, like small little TV, like marked down on clearance. And I was like, I'm going to buy this. (laughs) <laughs> and so I've been re-watching Criminal Minds because I can listen to it because I've already watched all the episodes. I'm like, I'm just going to re-watch this. Well, my just husband like came in. Noise. Yeah, just background noise. He came in like a couple weeks ago and he sat in like my little like chair that I have in here. And it was the episode that was like based off of like the Willie Picton case. Mm-hmm. And he was like, oh, pigs like going on. And I was like, dude, this is like tamed down. Like this is... A PG version of what actually this is happened. The PG version of what case. actually happened. Well, that's another one that we get requests for constantly too. I get an email. I get emails several times a week, being like, "You ever heard of Will Picton?" And the answer is yes. Oh and yeah, at nauseum. No. But it's one of those where it has been covered so well, so many times by like very great podcasts that you don't need us. You don't need us yeah. to do that. <laughs> yeah you you got it dude just fits out find there. someone who's got it unless you just want to hear my soothing voice describe this guy feeding bodies to his pigs and what is it with these guys they all smell like shit <laughs> that was one of the biggest things with like they would say about like willie picton like he smelled so bad because he lived on like a hog farm and this guy smelled so bad because I think the only part of this story that I am like, I was like, man, I, I feel bad because I know how that can get. Like, I've seen it with my own eyes. I've, you know, like when you get into such a mental health deficit where you can't, you don't take care of yourself. And so when it started talking about like before he was being like bat shit and it was that he wasn't showering, he wasn't like taking care of his hygiene. I was like, I, that's. That's usually the first sign where I'm like, wait a second, my mental health's getting bad. I haven't showered in three or four days. Like something's up. I should I should take care of myself. And you know what? If you're in one of those spots right now, take this as me telling you to go take care of yourself. I'm mm-hmm. requesting that you go take a shower right now because you deserve my, it. My therapist told me like, just do one thing. 
Like it is a ha- like you don't have to do day. a take everything shower. Just get in the under the fucking water. Like just do it. There are times like when I'm having like a real tough go and I just stand under there. But to me, I'm like, okay, I did something. Like, yeah, the water blends in with your tears. No one will ever know. It's all that's good. what you're doing. You're hiding it. It's great. Plus, it's warm. I don't know. I feel like a new woman when I get out of the shower. I do. I do now because I take cold showers. But like, I used oh, to be. That's right. I'm cold shower bitch. I know you're a cold shower bitch. I, it's like exposure therapy, you know? You like do things that make you uncomfortable until they don't. And I just don't want to do. We are. There's a lot of bad stuff in the world. I'm not jumping onto the cold shower train. Uh, This is very first world, like first world props. But we're getting rid of our hot tub right now. And what? Yeah, I'm getting rid of my hot tub because. Is it broken? No, it's not broken. It's just hot people soup, you know? It's just... <laughs> just like baths. I've had that... We've had that conversation many times. Yeah. And, like, I'll get... people just, stew. I will get in the mood for a bath. And, like, I have, like, a big bathtub. So I'm like, oh, let me just hang out in here if I need to. But it's a lot of upkeep. And the only time I like hot tubbing is in the dead of winter when I have to, like, slough out through the snow and, like, then my hair. You know, you know we used to hot tub at your mom's like that. Like, it'd be yeah, fucking yeah. snowiest. That's the only time that I like to hot tub. That is the best time to do it, when mm-hmm. it's cold and then the water's real hot. And then you have to, like, run and to scuttle inside because it's so cold. Yeah, that is the superior time to go hot tub. And I was like, you know, I'm going to be honest. I don't feel like keeping up with this. But I think I'm going to try and get one of the cold plunge. Like, not the real fancy ones, but, like, the little little bit fancy. You just can't fill your hot tub up with, like, cold water and ice? Is it too much? No, because you got to drain it every time. Oh, you do? That seems like a lot I would of think water. in a hot tub just because it's, like, real big. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know how any of this works. Someone who has a cold plunge, sponsor us and send me one. Just get a barrel. Just a barrel. Fill it up with water. Leave it out all winter. That'll be cold. Well, when I first started talking about it, my husband was like, can't you just like do that in the bathtub? Like, and I was like, <laughs> I could. <laughs> no, what do? What do? Uh, He's like, you take a cold I, shower. Like, that's enough. Like, you're. I saw the thing where it's like helps you produce, helps your brain produce dopamine. And I do think that's cool. But again, just not something I want to do. Not super on board with Maybe one day, maybe one day you'll get me to change my tune, but. I started really slow. Like I would, I used to be like hot as hell showers. Like my skin would be like blotchy and red when I got out. And I just started because I heard it helped migraines. That's why I was like, okay, let me just see. What, so I would the take cold my. showers help migraines? Okay. Yeah. The cold. Okay. I heard like the cold because it like constricts your vessels or something. I didn't know. Mm-hmm. It was just like one of those TikTok reels that I saw or TikToks that I saw. So I would take my really hot shower and then it start like I would just do like 30 seconds. I would turn it all the way to cold for like 30 seconds and then get out. And then I started doing that to like where I could handle the 30 seconds. And like I don't take like only I mean, they're cold, but like there's a there's sometimes they're a little warm. Like it's it's like lukewarm is the hottest I get. Dang. You're brave soul. But I have a towel warmer. I think that really helps because I know when I get out, I'm wrapping up with a towel. You're going to have your cozy towel. I remember when you bought it, you were like, is this a waste of money? And I was like, it's not a waste of money if you like it. (laughs) It's my favorite. You can always get more money, baby. Okay. Subject change. What's your favorite compliment? 
right now or in general? Uh, anything that has to do with being smart. So anything like intellectual or me being a good mom. That's pretty much because it. What about you? <laughs> uh, <laughs> my brother, my brother once said I was industrious that I handle. Like, Which I would agree. To... <laughs> I yeah. agree that. It's, uh, I uh, don't know. Wait, you got your new washer and dryer this week, did you? I Speaking did. of industrious. My new to me uh, washer and dryer. And I have a funny story about it. One, my brother bought a house and uh, he had a washer and dryer. And then um, I got his and I haven't had one for months. So I've never been like more pumped to do laundry in my entire life. Had like, I was doing like a load or two when I could. I would like go to my mom's or I'd go to my brother's and like get like my scrubs clean for the week for work. Or I would get like the kids clothes clean for the week it's like whatever we needed it was just as as you go but he brought this and then uh he came over and he brought them and my boyfriend came over and was helping install them and then my brother turned my water off and (laughs) it wasn't working and we were all trying to figure it out like we called my dad and asked him what he thought it was and we called um or Nick called like his father-in-law, sorry, Nick's my brother, uh, called his father-in-law, was like trying to ask him what it could be. And we were all just trying to figure it out. So eventually he comes in and he's like, hey, uh, why don't you call a plumber in the morning and I'll pay, I'll help you pay to like get it fixed because I, um, because I turned it off and I don't know what happened. I don't know why I won't turn back on. And I was like, no, dude, it's fine. I, I will call someone. It's not a big deal. And it was kind of late, so he had to go. So he left. And then my boyfriend went out and turned my water back on. And he was like, well, we were out there. Your brother said the thing was backwards, but I knew it wasn't backwards. So I just waited until he left to turn it back on because I didn't want to, like, embarrass <laughs> it. And I was like, you should Dude, that's so great, though, because I would have been like, uh, you're wrong. I'd have been like, you're wrong. Actually, and that's the difference between us and our brothers. (laughs) And a kind person. And a nice person person. who would consider someone else's feelings before they did that. Um, And then I texted Nick immediately and I was like, hey, it wasn't backwards. And he thought it was funny, of course. But uh, he he and my dad both do that. They like think something. They're like, oh, it's definitely this. And they like tell everyone that's what it is, but it's not that. And then when they leave, you have to fix it because they were wrong. And they're like, I love them both, but sometimes they're wrong would... and they'll never. <laughs> they'll never admit. I would have been like, won't. my YouTube dad, Chuck, said that you're wrong. <laughs> Actually, YouTube dad disagrees with you. Um, no, I kind of have like a real life YouTube dad, though. He doesn't make YouTube videos, but he could like. I feel like he could be one of those guys that did that and they would be terrible quality, but you would get exactly what you needed out of it. And uh, so when I need something, I called him like I was changing a tire one night. I told this story recently. I was changing a tire one night and it was cold and it was winter and we couldn't get it off. And he was like, oh, it's cold. It's been rusted on there. It's probably been on there a long time. Just kick the shit out of it and it'll pop right off. So I just started kicking the shit out of it. And sure enough, it popped right off. It was awesome. And then I changed the tire. No questions asked. Well, yeah. On that note, you guys got yes. a lot of us tonight. 
more to more to come of us in the future (laughs) bye all right bye thank you so much for listening to gruesome horrific true crime we love you beautiful strangers and if you love us too here are some ways that you can support gruesome please leave us a five-star review on apple podcast or a five-star rating on spotify this helps other true crime connoisseurs find us Follow us at Gruesome Podcasts on Instagram or TikTok and talk to us on our posts. Join the Patreon. Sign up to join our True Crime Sticker of the Month Club and gain access to bonus episodes and exclusive Patreon perks. Or if a one-time donation is more your thing, we have a Venmo at Gruesome Podcast and a PayPal via our email, gruesomepodcast at gmail.com. Speaking of which, we love hearing from you. It seriously makes our whole life. So send us your questions, comments, suggestions, or just ask our opinion on whether that person you met on Tinder is a serial killer or not. Tune in next week and don't forget, lock your windows, lock your doors, and on Wednesdays, we're we're gruesome. gruesome. Bye.